This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on recent legal and policy decisions affecting diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace. Joining me today are three very special guests. First, we have Professor Leora Eisenstadt, who is Associate Professor, Department of Legal Studies, Fox School of Business at Temple University here in the Philadelphia area. Her areas of scholarship and interest include employment law, business law, law and linguistics, work-family conflict, sex discrimination, race and the law, and public policy. She is the founding director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, known as SEDWIC. In that capacity, Leora manages an advisory board, including senior DEI and talent management executives from a number of Fortune 500 companies. Next, we have Sarah Margolis, who is the co-founder and CEO of Honey Fund, which is a wedding gift registry that allows friends and family to contribute to a couple's honeymoon and other savings goals. Honey Fund received backing by Kevin O'Leary after Sarah appeared on Shark Tank in 2014 and raised $1.55 million from more than 3,000 individual investors to expand into gifting beyond the wedding. Honey Fund is one of the lead plaintiffs in a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Florida's HB7, which is otherwise known as the Stop Woke Act. Last, we have Sarah Shemaine Weiss, who is counsel at Protect Democracy, a cross-ideological nonprofit group working to prevent our democracy from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. The organization is focused on free and fair elections, the rule of law, fact-based debate, and a better democracy for future generations. Protect Democracy represents HoneyFund.com and other plaintiffs in litigation challenging the constitutionality of Florida's Stop Woke Act. Sarah primarily uh, litigates on behalf of people targeted by anti-democratic disinformation. Previously, she was an assistant federal public defender uh, where she represented people sentenced to death and served as a law clerk to a federal district court judge. Welcome, Leora, Sarah, and Sarah. I'm so honored to have you with me today for a conversation on recent legal and policy decisions affecting DEI in the workplace. So I want to start us off by talking about some of the recent legal and policy decisions that affect DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, in the workplace um, that each of you has been addressing in your respective work. And so, Leora, let's start with you. So you have pretty extensive experience working and studying employment law and discrimination issues. And as you know, in the months since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, many employers have come out to publicly support abortion rights, including offering to cover travel expenses for uh, abortion care. So based on your research and expertise, Leora, can you comment on the effectiveness of companies' responses to the Dobbs decision? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, great to be here. Thanks, Stephanie. So I, I will say that I was initially very supportive 
and kind of frankly, personally appreciative when companies first started announcing these policies, it kind of felt like, oh, I'm being seen. My political angst is being seen by these companies. But the more I thought about it, and frankly, I, I kind of can't stop thinking about it, the more concerned I've become. And you know, I think we should start by saying there are a number of reasons that companies are doing this, presumably, right? So one is the belief that it's the right thing to do, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. Um, a second probably is to gain consumer loyalty, right? Brand reputation issues. And then you probably have talent attraction and retention reasons, right? Especially companies that are headquartered in places or have large workforces in states that are outlawing abortion, right? And they're worried that they won't be able to attract or retain the best people in those states. And in terms of my concerns about it, there's sort of four categories that that concern me, but I am generally concerned with turning to corporate America in place of government for sort of basic protection issues. Um, and this may be just another iteration of that or that issue sort of on steroids. But um, my concerns sort of range from privacy issues, the concerns that we kind of always have in this area, but they're increased here for a number of reasons. And then sort of worker versus worker or workplace culture problems that I see arising as a result of this new benefit. Um, uncertainty and instability, which is, you know, that's a real concern when you're giving this important protection to uh, a corporation as opposed to government. Who's going to get it and for how long can this be taken away? Um, and equity issues. Right. So that's discrimination issues. It's also about who in the workplace gets it, which workplaces, right, small businesses versus large corporations, um, and also some issues around sex discrimination and pregnancy discrimination in particular. So I can go into all of those in more detail, but that's sort of the landscape for me about about my concerns. Yeah, so let's bring in uh, Sarah Margolis and Sarah CW into this conversation because certainly you represent, you know, a a, a perspective that is that business leaders should be involved in a in a host of, of societal issues and and certainly the ones that you all are focused on right now are related to democracy. But I'd be interested to see your pers- hear your perspective a little bit on the types of things that, that Leora is speaking about this, this concern. And I don't know if you share this concern at all, either from your perspective um, or you feel like it's something that shouldn't be concerning. But that said, um, in addition to publicly supporting abortion rights, many employers have also taken an active role in, in efforts to preserve democracy. So, so Sarah Margolis, I, I can imagine you, you've been listening to Leora. I'm sure this is not something that you haven't heard before, but you just certainly have your own stance and, and you've thoughtfully uh, chosen to to weigh in on on certain social and political issues. Um, why are you choosing to to speak out in, in these ways? And and do you share any of the concerns that that Leora has started to share that she has with us regarding particularly the Roe v. Wade and the, and the Dobbs decision? Yeah, I want first. I want to say I'm so grateful for women like Leora and Sarah CW on this call who take it from the wide perspective like that. I am taking it from a very individual perspective. I am a, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I own a business. I am a woman. My business is based in Florida. Florida came out with a law saying that I can't talk about diversity, equity, inclusion at work in a mandatory training for my employees. And that just did not seem right to me. 
So I read through the law. I'm a business owner. I have to be up on these things. I called my attorneys. I said, what does this mean? They said, well, what it really means is that, you know, there might be some things you can't say and that you're going to really need to spend a lot more on attorney's fees to, to parse what works and what doesn't in these trainings. So that's just a very like personal pain, right? <laughs> like I'm not trying to come out as some big activist or say that employers should be activists necessarily. I'm just trying to run my own business as a single individual citizen of the United States. So when, you know, when I heard that this lawsuit was happening, it it made a lot of sense to me to challenge this law, especially because it is so blatantly unconstitutional. And that's where I hand it to you, Sarah C.W. All right, Sarah C.W., you work for Protect <laughs> Democracy, and you're working uh, on this lawsuit that's challenging the constitutionality of Florida Stop Woke Act on behalf of Florida private companies, including Sarah Margolis' company, Honey Fund. Uh, can you tell us about the motivation for you in, in your organization um, engaging in this work? Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, our goal at Protect Democracy is to fight against authoritarianism and make our democracy more resilient, as you mentioned. Um, speech codes like this, the one in the Stop Woke Act, is are one example of this type of authoritarianism. You know, speech codes that seek to censor ideas that challenge government officials' preferred narrative, muzzle independent institutions, and direct outrage towards disfavored groups. That's really taking a page from the authoritarian playbook. As Sarah, the other Sarah, um, wonderfully mentioned, we have the First Amendment here in the United States. Um, you know, we have freedom of speech. We have the freedom to say things that government officials might not want us to say. Um, we also, you know, this is about DEI training. This is also about broader types of speech. You know, this act bans and chills a very kind of wide swath of speech that business owners should be free to share. Um, you know, we see, you often hear, you know, states are labs of democracy, and we also want to make sure that they're not labs of authoritarianism. Um, and again, we do all sorts of work at Protect Democracy in terms of, you know, voter intimidation, officials politicizing their roles, things like that. Um, and this is part of that authoritarian threat. So, Leora, let's go back to you. And I, I want to give you a chance to respond to anything that, that you've heard so far, because I think what you've helped us to understand are the risks, right? The risks behind engaging. Um, and I think for you, the perspective uh, from your own expertise as, as an attorney um, and somebody who studies issues of, um, you know, privacy and discrimination-based law. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the risks uh, you were, just expand a little bit on, on what you were laying out there previously? I think a lot of the risks you were talking about, I heard were risks to employees. I'm wondering if you also think about risks to employers as well. Um, but basically just giving you the chance to, to jump in here and then I'll probably ask you a, a follow-up question as well. Yeah, and I think it's really very different. The company's response to the Dobbs decision and companies' response to the, for example, the Florida Stop Woke Act are really two different animals. One is advocacy and litigation, and the other is offering a benefit because government has left like a vacuum, essentially, right? And so those are do, two different postures, I think. And so the, the benefit approach 
is it seems like a great idea because now there's this vacuum, but the risks it creates, and you're right, Stephanie, it's about risks to employees for the most part. The privacy risks risks are pretty clear. Who's going to be managing this, this benefit, right? Is it going to be HR? Is it going to be your supervisor who now knows that you want to travel out of state to get an abortion, right? Um, and we're talking about worker versus worker issues, what if your state has an SB8 style law like the one in Texas where there's actually a bounty, an incentive to report on your coworkers who are going to get abortions? What does that do to workplace culture? So yes, that's an employee issue, but that should concern employers too. If you want to create a healthy workplace culture and now you live in a state that incentivizes people, you know, reporting to the police on others' behavior, that's not good news for you, right? Um, in terms of the sort of uncertainty, instability, my concerns there are, look, unlike legal rights, which are generally hard to take away once given, notwithstanding recent developments in the reproductive area, you know, companies, corporate policy can change pretty quickly. And so I'd be concerned about trusting this essential benefit, essential right to whatever my employer feels like doing in that moment, right? So that that gives me pause. And then the equity piece is a really big one, right? So small businesses employ something like 47% of US employees. And are they going to be able to afford this kind of benefit for all of their employees? They are not the, you know, Airbnbs and the Teslas and the Starbucks and the Netflix who can say, we're going to provide this benefit for everyone. So you already have a sort of inequity issue there. But again, I think it's really different to say, companies are going to provide a benefit as opposed to companies are advocating in an area. And I, I think the advocacy in the area of the Florida law is fantastic. And I don't really see any downsides for companies. In fact, it almost is as if like they don't have a choice because the law, in addition to being unconstitutional, is hampering their ability to run their businesses effectively. Okay. Okay. So let me follow up on that because um, certainly you've studied a variety of, of, of movements over the course of your career. And, and so have you seen anything quite like, uh, well, quite like Florida's Stop Woke Act, number one, and quite like the, the pushback against um, Florida's Stop, Stop Woke Act from the business community? I to think, I, you know, this does feel somewhat unique in the way that it impacts businesses. And so the sort of unanimity of the response. I mean, you, you've got higher ed responding, you've got nonprofits responding, you've got businesses responding, you've got teachers in, in elementary schools responding, everybody's against it. And it pretty clearly looks like a political move as opposed to true, you know, legislation for ideological reasons. So I don't think that there is sort of an analogy that I can think of, but maybe Sarah, who's worked on these issues, can. Okay, so let's go to Sarah Margolis first. Um, so has this been easy, challenging to be part? I feel like that's like such a, a random question, but I want to know more about how has it been to, to get involved in this really controversial set of issues uh, related to the, the this Florida Stop Woke Act? And, and honestly, I always want to always paint the bright side of everything. Um, and, and so I can imagine that this might potentially have also felt a bit rewarding to you at times as well. Yeah, you know, when I brought, the possibility of doing this to my leadership team. We talked through all the pros and cons, of course, as any business does when making a big decision. And some of the cons included, you know, potential retribution from the state of Florida, which we saw with the Don't Say Gay bill against Disney. Some of them uh, included um, 
you know, just pushback from, you know, as people that feel strongly about Florida's political leanings and the governor specifically and kind of the, frankly, um, white supremacist movement seems to be very happy with this law. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that are there people like that using our service that we might be upsetting. So we had to kind of go around and look at all the cons. The pros, of course, it's not only just the right thing to do morally, it's the right thing to do legally and constitutionally. It's just the right thing to do for diversity. I mean, we're a business that is roughly 65% women. We need to be able to talk about white privilege, male privilege. Um, and, and this law doesn't just squash or chill speech around uh, racial diversity, also a gender diversity. So that was another big reason why we felt like it was the right thing to do and important to our business. Honey Fund is a wedding related company. We serve couples who are, you know, receiving gifts from their friends and family to pay for their honeymoon. And love is love. Everybody gets married, right? So we have to, we have to serve a diverse group of people and we want to um, ensure that our team understands what diversity is, what equity is, what inclusion is, how does that come out in our marketing materials? How does that come out in our site interface? Like, you know, are we using gendered language around our site? Things like that just so that we can do our business well and serve our customers. So that makes diversity training important. And so that's why, you know, we felt like the pros far outweighed the cons. So I had two thoughts in response to you were sharing is that when I hear you or anyone say diversity training, I think about diversity education. I think about my job as a professor mm-hmm. and what that experience would be like if somebody said, Stephanie, you can no longer teach that diversity mm-hmm. class at mm-hmm. the school. And I remember when we had a similar set of challenges around diversity education um, during the previous presidency. Um, and when there was that sort of that moratorium on diversity education was placed then. And I remember my students asking me, so are we still going to talk about this tough stuff in this class or not? And I said, well, you know what? Well, I abide by and the Wharton School abides by principles of academic freedom, which allows me to talk about things that are educational um, and, and within the mission of our educational institution. And so it is a bit uh, perplexing to me um, that education in any form can be censored. Right. But I'm also an academic who works in an academic institution under principles of academic freedom. And that's very different than mm-hmm. public education. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the first thought I had. The second thought that I was having was as I think about um, implications, you've been saying, as well as everybody so far has been talking about the broader implications. It's not just about that group. Um, my, my experience. Um, as as not a lawyer, but my experience as an as an academic studying a variety of social movements seems sees that sometimes this our discomfort, particularly in the U.S. in talking about race, sometimes catalyzes um, oppositional efforts that people forget affect all other marginalized groups. And so, you know, my students wanted to talk about. We've been talking about all quarter about the affirmative action cases. Uh, at the, the Supreme Court right now. And I said, okay, so understand that um, people's discontent with rate talking about race, whether it's the Florida Stop Woke Act or whether it's affirmative action and how that's how race-based admissions are, are handled at, at educational institutions. Um, that has certainly been named as uh, by the, the, the opposition as part of their discontent, but it has implications for all these other groups because the affirmative action is tied. It's not just 
Black people. It's not just Asians. It's also uh, women. It's also people with disabilities. It's also certain groups of veterans. And, and I thank you, Sarah Margulis, for pointing to the fact that even though part of the trigger for the Stop Woke Act was related to discontent around how we were talking about race, it does have implications for other groups, including gender and sexual orientation. So I'm just going to pause there and just give you a chance to respond to anything that I've shared. I thought much of what you said was very generative for me. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was nodding along as you were talking about the academic side of it. That was certainly part of the Stop Woke Act, not my part as a private employer, but I've been following that and was really happy to see the same judge um, enjoying the academic part recently so that you do have freedom of education. And what what good is the education is to open people's minds and, and help them understand that, you know, equity is something we should all strive for. Are we always going to get it right? Maybe not. But we should be trying to continue to improve it versus try to squash it. That's my view on things. All right. So let's go to Leora. Yes, you have some thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to add that Sarah also brought up the sort of thing that we talk about actually a lot at the center that I run at Temple at Sedwick with, with the business leaders, which is they are all very bought into the business case for diversity. Mm-hmm. Right. So beyond this being the right thing to do, which they all feel sort of morally um, committed to this also, but they are 100 percent on board with this notion that they are not going to have effective businesses if they don't pay attention to these issues and if they don't educate their workforces on these issues. And so and everybody's moving in that direction. I mean, you, you're seeing study after study saying that millennials and Gen Zers are willing to give up salary for better workplace culture, for companies that are committed to social causes. You're seeing people say that societal leadership is a core function of business. Like this is happening. And so for laws to like the Florida law to try to get in the way of that, it it, it seems almost silly to me because the movement is heading so strongly in the other direction. And government just kind of can't get in the way for sort of naked political reasons um, of a, of a business, you know, trying to run itself effectively. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because (laughs) we actually moved our company from California to Florida because it was a business friendly state in 2017. And so this is one of the things I've been saying is like, Florida should pick a lane. Are they going to be business friendly or are they going to be squashing, you know, free speech of, of business leaders? So I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, Sarah CW. Yes. Yeah, I, I also wanted to jump in here because I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, what both of you are saying, and it reminds me very much that, you know, the democracy, in addition to all of this, you know, being, you know, doing DEI training, caring about diversity, caring about a positive work culture, a democracy crisis is very bad for business, right? All over the world where there's political chaos, instability, changing rules, certain, you know, people favored over others by the government because of their views. That's not good for business. There has to be sort of a set of rules that everybody knows, you know, when they're good, you know, when they're following them or not. Um, This sort of instability can affect the economy as a whole. For example, the U.S. almost saw its credit rating downgraded because of the uncertainty around the peaceful transfer of power after January 6th. Um, You know, again, we see when businesses are targeted, um, when elected officials single out individual companies for political purposes and the regulatory apparatus is weaponized against these companies, success in the marketplace seems only possible through loyalty to political officials. And that's 
you know, that's not, that's not good for business. That's not the free market that the U.S. is known for. And we actually at Protect Democracy, we study this and we talk about this and we call it autocratic capture. And there's, we've kind of seen a particular pattern of this in Florida, as you mentioned, you know, the whole after Disney weighed in on Don't Say Gay, after when the Tampa Bay raised, they released a statement speaking about gun violence. The governor blocked state funding for its new training complex. Mm-hmm. So again, while we see both sides of this, that the democracy crisis is bad for business. Yeah. So I teach uh, a, a diversity, equity, inclusion classes at the Wharton School. And one of the days is devoted to talking about uh, corporate and employee activism, uh, acknowledging that there has been a, a height, heightened um, awareness toward uh, these social and political issues and, and greater activity on the, on the behalf of not only employers, but also the, the employees who work in these organizations. And it's always interesting when I listen to my students who are, you know, late teens, early to mid twenties on average, perhaps some just shy of 30. Um, And it goes without saying that many of them were raised at a time where there is an expectation that employers take a stand on many of these harmful um, social and political issues. And, And we've talked a lot about well, they may not take the stand you want them to take. That's not the point. The idea here is that um, being able to understand as an employer that you are not separate from society, you are you're a part of society, you play an important role in society, I think makes for some really generative discussions in our classroom. That said, I think what we've come to terms with in, in our classroom setting, but also in my research is that not all employers are well prepared for the inevitable backlash they will receive from some community of people, whether it's a small one, a large one, whether it's the government, when they when they speak out in this way. And so I just wanted to, um, before we turn to solutions, and I guess this is kind of a solution, if you will, is, is any thoughts from amongst uh, the three of you on how businesses could more effectively plan to manage the backlash that they might inevitably receive from speaking out in this ways. I guess what what I mean to say is that I find that um, it would be a bit naive to to imagine as a business leader that you're going to speak out on these topics and somebody's not going to tell you you shouldn't have done that, right? And so have you thought about planning for that, like a risk mitigation strategy that involves how we will address the backlash, not the one that is a let's not talk out, we talk about it because people won't like us. But wondering if any of you has any thoughts on planning to address backlash before it, it comes in front of you. Yeah, I mean, Sarah and the team at Product Democracy, um, you know, talked us through all the risks and, you know, worst case scenarios and things. So we did that level of planning. We got several emails into the business, some, you know, most very positive, but some negative. Like the, there was a common phrase, like just move back to California where you belong, kind of that kind of sentiment. And um, and one thing for us, you know, we really felt like the First Amendment is for everyone. And just like you said, even when the activism or the speech is not what you agree with, it's still free. It's still free speech. And so um, we just, we kind of crafted like a very kind response, like, you know, thank you for your thoughts. And, you know, we're, we're really honored to be able to protect not just our speech, but yours too. Yeah, absolutely. 
I guess it depends a little bit on where you expect the backlash to come from. So I like the way that Sarah talked about um, weighing the pros and cons and thinking about what your legal fees will be if you do this versus if you don't do this, because there are going to be legal fees on both sides, um, regardless of the, of the path you choose. But, you know, if the government is the one coming at you for taking a stand on something, then you have to repair you know, your, your plan accordingly versus customers, consumers, or employees. Those are two different sort of risk plans, I think. Um, but, but I like the idea of sort of weighing the pros and cons because you know that there are going to be costs to speaking up and you know, there are going to be costs to not speaking. So to think of it that way. Absolutely. All right. So let's turn to some uh, more solutions uh, and what else you all are thinking can be done when we think about any, all the ones that we didn't talk about of these uh, legal and policy decisions affecting DEI in the workplace. And so I, I'd like us to, to think about solutions from uh, the perspective of business leaders, of course, but also employees in the spirit of knowing that there are individual contributors at all levels of the organization, but maybe people who don't have the formal power and authority to speak out on their company's behalf, but are really interested in, in getting engagement, perhaps at a, a grassroots level in, in supporting their company's um, voice around these issues. Sarah C.W., let's start with you. What, what recommendations do you have to business leaders in terms of taking an active stance on social and political issues? For sure. Um, I think obviously the goal is to get to a place where, you know, businesses aren't having to stand up and fight for our democracy. But in the meantime, we think that, you know, I, my organization and I think that business leaders are in a really unique position to defend democracy. Why, you know, they make products their customers love, they make jobs, they employ people, they're active members, of their communities, um, you know, year after year, the Edelman's trust barometer has found that business more than the media or government or nonprofit um, is trusted kind of across party lines. Um, and therefore, they're kind of uniquely positioned to act in ways that transcend our politics. Um, and they also have the platforms and influence either locally or nationally to do so. Um, and of course, we're very grateful for Sarah M and her business Honey Fund, as well as our other plaintiffs in this case. Um, one is Primo Tampa, which is a Black-owned Ben & Jerry's franchisee that won the Operator of the Year Award last year, um, as well as uh, Shavara Oren and her company Collective Concepts that do this training in the workplace. Um, you know, they're standing up courageously for our democracy and for freedom of speech, their ability to continue to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, structural inequality in the workplace. Um, and I think the more people that stand up for this, the easier it will get for each individual company to do this. Um, so we're hoping that other companies will also continue to get involved. Um, very specifically with this case, we'd love to be in touch with other business leaders who are interested in getting involved. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways. If you're listening and you're interested and you wouldn't mind emailing me, um, you know, you'll see how my name is spelled out on the website for this podcast, but it's S-A-R-A dot C-H-I, M as in Mary E, N as in Nancy E, hyphen W-E-I-S-S -S, at protectdemocracy.org. 
we'd love for other businesses to have our brave plaintiffs backs. Um, and we'd love to talk to you more. Thank you, Sarah CW. You reminded me of, of how you and I met <laughs> for the purposes of, of this podcast. And that was through an organization that you all work with, um, the Leadership Now Project. And I was fascinated by the work that they are doing to engage uh, business leaders in, in conversations about democracy and how I came into contact with them and, the, and, and thus you was they were doing a lot of work here, well, in the country, but in the Philly area prior to this, the midterm elections. Um, and, and that work was around uh, encouraging business leaders to help fight for and advocate for fair elections and, and, and to maintain the integrity of the elections process. And I learned that a variety of companies, including Independence Health here in Philadelphia, were giving their employees paid time off. Uh, in order to vote. And so that's not about telling people that you need to vote, you know, Democrat or you need to vote Republican or any with any party affiliation. It's it's giving them the space to exercise their rights. And, and I when I think about the work that you all are doing, Sarah, at CWU, your organization, I, I think about that as well. It's not about telling them which stance they need to take. It's giving people the option of taking a stance of voting and not restricting their constitutional rights in any way, shape or form. So thank you, Sarah, for your, your contributions. Really, really helpful to have you here with us today. Leora, let's let's turn to you. I would especially love to get your perspective on what individual employees could do, followed by any perspective that you might have on employer-based initiatives regarding um, these policy decisions. Yeah, so I think, um particularly in this moment right now, employees' voices are pretty loud um, because of the labor market, right? Because of the competition for talent um, and and maybe also the ability to make your concerns go viral on social media, you can speak pretty loudly. So arguably employees have more power now that they, than they may have in the past. Um, but I think this, the same things that have worked in the past still work now, which is that collective action is still the most effective, right? So a group walkout over a corporate policy, that makes news, that gets people's attention, that changes the conversation about brand reputation and consumer loyalty, right? People um, choose brands that they identify with. And if you see that your, you know, the employees of your brand are marching out because of a, of an issue, you might change your mind about where to put your money. Um, grassroots labor organizing efforts are having a real effect on company leadership right now. So I think even though, you know, the, the times have changed a little bit, the strategies actually are, um, are, are somewhat the same. Um, in terms of employer efforts, I think employers have to think more than one step ahead. Um, and have to strategize about the impact of their actions more broadly on their workforce and on society more broadly. So just bringing us back to the, the Dobbs case and, and abortion protection, you know, it sounded great in the beginning that that employers were jumping on and saying, we'll provide, you know, funding to travel to get an abortion. And it made them look good, too, to have their names on this list. But if you think about all the potentially negative implications, maybe there's a different way to do it. Maybe there's an independent fund that all of these companies could contribute to. So you have a wall up between the company and this benefit, but they're still 
putting their money where their mouth is, right? So there are other ways to get this protection to people if we can think, you know, more than one step ahead, more than just about the sort of PR component of it and think about the implications. Yeah, definitely not the same level of, um, I think, exposure, but certainly something that might be considered risky is when employees fill out their annual satisfaction engagement inclusion survey. And I think about, I mean, myself as a researcher, I'm always bartering with (laughs) company lawyers and counsel to try to get approval for the questions I'm trying to ask. And, you know, one of the reasons why the the lawyers are often agreeing to work with me as collecting this data because it separates the data from the direct managers or anybody who's in a position of authority who could potentially affect this person's livelihood. And so that's why we think we see so many companies outsourcing their employee surveys to third parties uh, as a way to protect the individual employees um, so that they can assure the employees that um, you know, their immediate manager is not going to know what they said about how terrible of a manager they are. And I just hear you giving like a very similar strategy. This independent separate fund is like put like a mediator, someone else in the middle of this who can who might know who the person is, but it, not having that information about getting an abortion, go back to the employer. That just seems potentially harmful. Uh, and so I think that's a, I, I like that that idea. And if people want to follow up with you, Leora, I know you have this wonderful center, emerging up and coming center at, at Temple University Sedwick. Is, is there a way that they should contact you if they want to know more about the work you're doing over there? Yeah, sure. Um, Our website is www.temple.fox.edu backslash Sedwick, which is C-E-D-W-C. All right. Thank you so much, Leora. And now to you, Sarah Margolis, as a business leader, there's a lot of stuff pulling your attention, I'm sure, all the time. I'm even sure right now as you are engaging with us in this podcast, and we're so grateful for you for your time. I'm sure you have like hundreds of new emails. Um, And so, and I'm sure those who are listening, business leaders who are are listening to today's conversation can relate to the myriad uh, of things that, um, that require your attention. And so then we have these uh, challenging legal and policy decisions as as another uh, thing that warrants their attention. What advice would you have for them um, regarding responding, attending to these legal and policy decisions? What would you like them to do more of or do differently going forward? I think it's important to for businesses to understand the needs that they're serving in their marketplace, the customers they're serving, and how any advocacy that they would consider um, serves their business, really. That's the bottom line. You know, um, there's so many studies that diversity is good for literally the business's bottom line. When women, when you have more women on corporate boards and in leadership positions, when you have more people of color on corporate boards and leadership positions, those companies have better profit margins. So, you know, for me, that was the reason for this, you know, I mean, it was as a citizen, yes, I feel strongly about the First Amendment and I felt morally obligated to do it, but ultimately I have to ask myself, is this the right use of the business resources? And, and and for that reason, it was. So I would ask leaders to take a look at, you know, if there's something that's really um, pressing on your business or having a business impact on you that you can take a stand for, I think you should. 
I think you should be regularly surveying your your company's um, employees. Um, we have monthly anonymous surveys that go out to our employees, and we work really hard to make sure that everybody's answering those so that we can, um, you know, like you said, understand what they're what what drives them. You know, give them a voice, uh, where even a, a way to kind of speak anonymously about what's on their hearts and minds. Um, and I think your employees should should be part of whatever stance you want to take, which means having conversations with your executive teams, your your employees. Um, you know, is this a, is this something that we care about and that we're ready to go in all in on together? Fantastic. Sarah Margulis, thank you also for being here today. And thank you for, I think, the courage that it takes as a business leader to really stand up for the things that you think are important, but particularly things that are really deeply controversial in the state in which your business is operating. So we appreciate your willingness to step out in front uh, and lead in this regard versus being uh, a follower. Though followers are welcome, it's I think it's even more courageous to be a leader in doing this work. Uh, so I want to thank you all, Leora. Sarah Margolis and Sarah C.W. for joining us today. Your insights and expertise is absolutely invaluable. And I and I greatly appreciate you for being here. Uh, so that is all for us for today. Uh, thank you to our listeners for, for joining us and to for listening to today's episode of the Knowledge at War and Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 